This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose. On November 11, 1918, the armistice with Germany ended World War I. The war had brought unprecedented bloodshed on an unprecedented scale. Tens of millions of people were dead, millions more displaced. The war changed the face of Europe and the Middle East. In this, the second of two roundtables we're doing on the centenary of the end of World War I, I am joined by David Crew and Charters Wynn, both professors of history here at University of Texas at Austin. Today, we're going to be discussing Germany and Russia and the legacy of World War I. Welcome to the studio. Hi. Hi. In the episode, our first uh, roundtable that we did, which focused on the Middle East and the Balkans, both of our guests on that panel mentioned the agrarian nature of the First World War and sort of hinted that when the food supplies began to run out in Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire, which were the other two central powers, the will to fight had sort of waned, and that was when the writing was really on the wall for the, the war's end. Um, is that a fair assessment to make about both Germany and Russia? Uh, Dr. Crew, why don't we start with you? Well, I think the, the food problem was definitely uh, an important and growing problem in Germany. Um, but I would also... Um, put it in the context of, um, you know, the growing perception that the imperial government, um, Wilhelm II's government, was not doing um, what it should be doing or was not doing an efficient job of trying to distribute food fairly. There was a growth of an enormous black market. And, you know, maybe the way to look at it is that Germany was under a blockade by the, the British. The British Navy had um, installed, had planned a blockade, and that increasingly affected uh, food imports as well. So it contributed to uh, domestic unrest, and that transmitted to the front as well, because people wrote millions of letters back and forward, and uh, people knew what was going on in the home front. And so there were already food riots, uh, mainly women, younger boys and girls at home who'd waiting hours in line for food that maybe didn't arrive. Um, and then by 1917, those morphed into uh, massive strikes. Dr. Wynn, uh, what was the situation in Russia, which, of course, had kind of stopped its war effort a bit earlier because there was a revolution? And arguably the major spark for the February Revolution, which overthrew the autocracy, were food shortages. Russia is a country that was made up of 80% peasants. It actually, the harvests during the war were not as bad as one might think, given um, the food shortages that ultimately affected St. Petersburg, which was renamed Petrograd during the war. Um, certainly, many of the villagers were conscripted into the army, so there was something of a labor shortage. But the major problem with the food was a problem of transportation, mm -hmm. getting the food to the, to the army, getting the food to Petrograd. And um, coupled with other problems, fuel shortages and others, it sparked major unrest, culminating in the overthrow of the autocracy in February of 1917. So when the war comes to an end... Um how does Germany attempt to rebuild itself? It's lost its government, or at least the imperial mm -hmm. portion of the government. Um, and like uh, the Ottoman Empire, as we discussed previously, uh, the terms are imposed upon it from outside as to what surrender is going to entail. How does that go over? 
Not well. <laughs> <laughs> um, as soon as the terms of the Versailles Treaty or what's going to be the Versailles Treaty is uh, becomes public, there are massive demonstrations uh, in Berlin and elsewhere in Germany. Um, because of a couple of things, I think one is that Germans had really, uh, during the war, um, been misled about the military situation. There was heavy censorship of the press. But more importantly, I think, is that um, we have to keep in mind that in the East, um, in the war against Russia, then it appeared that you know, sort of in the 11th hour, then the Germans had scored a, an enormous victory, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Um, was conceived of was, it was seen as a, a great coup by the by the Germans, um, and they finally gained access to um, Ukraine as a consequence of that and the food that they desperately needed. But it was too late in the game. They were able to transfer forty divisions from Eastern Europe to Western Europe, but it was all too late. But I, I think in the public opinion, um, Hitler himself said that he was uh, recuperating after a gas attack in a hospital in Eastern Germany. That this, uh, you know came like a bolt of lightning. Those aren't the exact words, but that it was a shock. And it was a shock to, I think, many, many Germans that they had lost. You have to keep in, in mind that Germany was not occupied directly um, at the end of the war. The armistice didn't provide for that. But above all, it was the, the terms of the treaty, which we could talk about as we go on, I think. But And the fact that the, the, um, the German um, delegation at Versailles had no input into this whatsoever. They were kept sequestered. And it was a sort of, um, you know, slap in the face that uh, in the very place, the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles, where the German Empire had been declared in 1871, now the peace was imposed upon the Germans. And their only choice was to reject it and then be occupied by the Allies. How did the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk uh, impact Russia? What were, what were the terms of Russia's agreement to, to end hostilities with Germany? Well, after the February Revolution, February of 1917 that I mentioned, nine months later, the, the Bolsheviks seized power. And part of their appeal to the population was that they would get out of the war. Um, they had a simple slogan, bread, peace, and land. Um, and so peace was central to their appeal. And they were the only major party that was wanted to get out of the war, no matter the terms. They, the Brest-Litovsk Treaty was... Um, signed in March of 1918, and um, basically Germany already occupied all of that territory. Um, so there was the hope, um, misplaced as it proved to be, that, that the revolution in Russia would spark revolutions in Germany and other countries um, that would ultimately nullify the treaty. Um, and in fact, in November, with the defeat of Germany, the treaty is nullified. And ultimately, during the civil war that follows, Russia would regain much of that territory that was given up in the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. So who, which government signed the treaty? It was, it was, it was Bolshevik. Okay. But it was very contentious. Many, many Bolsheviks were opposed to signing the treaty, but um, in Lenin's very famous phrase, um, Europe is pregnant with, with revolution, but we've already given birth and we need to protect this revolution. Well, just also to follow up, uh, you know, a bit more on the question you posed was, um, you know, the the way the war came to an end um, in Germany was um, confusing to lots of people, but it also opened up the possibility for creating scapegoats because there was a revolution. 
um, at home. The myth was created, two myths were created, I think, uh, almost immediately. One was the famous stab in the back legend, which basically argued that the um, the German soldiers had stayed true to their duty to the last minute, most of them. But it was the socialists and the Marxists and the Jews at home who had... Um, fomented discontent and had undermined, had literally stabbed the military in the back, right? Uh, which was, you know, in terms of stabbing the military in the back, it was completely untrue. There was a revolution, but it was actually started by sailors in the North Sea ports um, and then spread to sailors and soldiers in the rest of Germany and into civilian population. But it's also true that by after the Ludendorff Offensive in the spring of um, 1918, um, German soldiers were um, defecting in large numbers, were either not going back to fight at the front or clearly could not be relied on to launch another offensive. And the Allies gained the most ground that they had in that period. And I say all of this because it put the successor government, the, what eventually became the Weimar Republic, and, and its statesmen in a pretty awful position because they were sort of tarred with the brush of being the ones who signed the treaty. Um, which no German liked, um, including politicians in the Weimar Republic. Um, and it became all too easy to uh, associate Weimar with this ignominious treaty and with the horrendous defeat. Let's talk about uh, the Weimar period, because mm-hmm. it, it's frequently in history sort of brought up as an example of almost a failed state, if you will, um, mm-hmm. that it was ineffective, that it never really governed Germany well, and that it basically lent itself to the rise of fascism in the 30s. Is is any of that a fair assessment? (laughs) (laughs) I think the part that says it's often characterized that way is a fair assessment. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And one of the things that I uh, always try to do in my classes is say, look, the Weimar Republic lasted longer than the Third Reich, right? Uh, The Third Reich was incredibly destructive and had, you know, horrendous consequences for Germany and for world history. But, um, you know, one good comparison would be to say uh, Mussolini marched on Rome and um, took power as early as 1922. Um, Hitler tried to do the same in 1923 and failed miserably. Right? Mm-hmm. Weimar had to deal with multiple crises, some of them inherited from the Wilhelmine monarchy, uh, for which it was nonetheless blamed, some of them intensified by what it do- did. But, you know, in the immediate aftermath, up until about 1923-24, there were problems of the defeat, loss of huge loss of territory, forced demobilization at a rapid rate required by the Allies, and then a hyperinflation that had was unprecedented. Um, that created a lot of damage, undoubtedly, and it really polarized the society. But nonetheless, the, the Weimar Republic then went into a period of relative, and I emphasize relative, um, stability from 1924 to the onset of the Great Depression. And all of you know the effects of the lost war played an important part in the rise of Hitler to power. But we have to keep in mind that um, after 1923-24, when Hitler decided that they were going to, the Nazis were going to fight elections, they never got more than about four, five percent of the vote. Right, so they were consigned to the margins. It was a depression, I think, that created the next new crisis that gave the Nazis an opening. And it's a complicated story, but. It's unclear to me that Weimar could not have... It it might have survived. I mean, it's unlikely, but it might have survived. Looking at Russia during this period, they're fighting their own civil war. 
Is the specter of would have, what World War I could have done or had they stayed in longer or something that was lost important in the Russian psyche or is it just sort of pushed aside in, in favor of internal politics? Um, what then leads Russia back toward the, the war march in the 30s? So are you asking if if the memory of the war was pushed aside? Uh, I guess the idea of the war as something, a missed opportunity, um, an unfulfilled dream, something that needed to be redeemed. I know, for example, in uh, the German imagination, sort of redeeming the war loss played huge in, in the march toward the Second World War. Was any of that in Russia or, or not really? Not really. Um, it's the revolution that was central to the psyche of Russians, both for and against the Bolshevik regime. Uh, it's the signing of the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. That's the kind of final straw that leads to armed opposition to the Bolshevik seizure of power, the civil war that you mentioned. Um, part of the civil war experience was 15 foreign nations intervening in the civil war on the, on the side of the anti-Bolsheviks, the whites. Um, that was something the Bolsheviks used to portray uh. themselves as the true patriots, uh, that they're not lackeys of these foreign imperial governments as they would portray it. But uh, World War I uh, was something that is not generally appreciated. Russia suffered more losses than any other country during the war. It uh, devastated parts of the empire, where they engaged in scorch-earth policies as they're retreating, um, especially during 1915. But there was, they were not allowed to have veterans' organizations like elsewhere in Europe um, of World War I veterans. There was no commemoration. Um, to this day, you started the, our podcast off with the armistice. Uh, Russia does not recognize the armistice. That's not a holiday in Russia. Um, so its experience was quite different than the others. I would just add, though, it, it does play a significant role during the war. But as I said, it suffered major losses. But it's all forgotten. It's part of the past. I think even today, most Russians do not appreciate what they experienced because this, um, Soviet historians did not emphasize the war. Foreign scholars were not allowed to really do research on the war oh, until, wow. until the collapse of the Soviet regime in 1991. So it's still a relatively understudied part of Russian history and and in their experiences during the 20th century. It's certainly World War II that is the major focus and arguably legitimized the regime in a way nothing had before. So uh, the civil war in Russia is settled about when? In the mid-20s? Oh, no. It's, it, so it begins in the spring of 1918, and um, arguably by the end of 1920, it's over. Okay. In Central Asia, it will continue longer than that. But um, it is generally over by the beginning of 1921. They've basically recaptured much of the former empire, you know, not the Baltic states, but other than that, and not Poland, part of Poland that was part of the Russian empire. But it's over by then. But it, the, the country is in utter ruins. The economy is completely collapsed. It's something like 15% of its GDP in, in 1913 is what the industrial output was in 1921. So um, they've emerged victorious, but there's mass unrest with the Bolshevik regime, and there are serious, serious economic challenges, um, partly as a result of their own policies of grain requisitioning, you know, taking grain from the peasants. Again, the food problem that we started off with um, was a major issue during the, during the Civil War. Um, 
but uh, there will be in 1921 a massive famine in which some five million Russians die and would have been even worse if America hadn't provided aid during the 1921 famine. I think I could, if it's okay, I could mm -hmm. come in and say a little bit also on, um, you know, in comparing to um, the the memory of or the um, interacting with um, World War One in Germany. Um, that's uh, really a hot button issue. Clearly, um, it's present, especially obviously present in terms of the outcome of um, the. Uh, dislike the hatred even of the Versailles Treaty, and um, you know mentioning Poland—that's a huge loss of territory for Germany because was, um, you know Poland, um, after the late 18th century, had just disappeared from the map of Europe, mm -hmm. swallowed up by these three great powers, of which Prussia and then Germany, the Empire was one of them. Um, and so, um, you know, that is, those are all issues. The way I would look at it would be to say that this is a highly contested memory, right? And you can sort of focus in on um, towards the end, late 1920s, you get the appearance of um, sort of major um, literature, war novels and um, other literature on World War I. Uh, Eric Maria remarks, All Quiet in the Western Front, the most famous. Um, it presents a certain despairing view um, of uh, life on the front, which the Nazis hate, right? And when it's made into a Hollywood movie and showed in Berlin in 1930, then Goebbels makes sure that it's so completely disrupted that uh, they have to shut it down, right? Um, I would say that um, the the memory of uh, World War One plays into the Nazi period, obviously in important kinds of ways, but above all, it's this uh, this sense that you see almost at the very to the very end amongst um, military leaders, uh, others. We don't want a repeat of November uh, of 1918. In other words, the German Revolution. I, I lived through that, and that's just so shameful. We can't possibly have that. So we'll go down in flames mm -hmm. rather than have that happen. Right? Well, I mean, you know, one other thing that, that listening to charters uh, I think is important is that um, – you know, World War II looms very large in in, in um, contemporary European memory, but um, World War One is also extremely important. Right, but it's undergone sort of a metamorphosis that I don't think that World War Two is ever going to undergo, and that is, it is now a European memory. Mm -hmm. And if you go to, um, you know, there's a, there's a major um, museum of the, of the First World War in the Somme. And the narrative there is constructed in terms of um, all sides are represented and everyone suffered, right? And that this was a colossal mistake um, that um, everyone paid for. I can't ever see um, a similar kind of narrative being um, developed around World War II. Right. Well, and it, and the interesting thing about the, the notion of the war being a mistake um, you know, and and it, it not only a mistake, but it was it was incredibly traumatic. I mean, the field of trauma studies comes out of World War One. The notion of shell shocked, you know, people who are literally rendered st stunned by by uh, the shells exploding, you know, comes out of World War One, and yet, um, particularly um, in the thirties, there's almost this march toward another inevitable conflagration, military conflagration. Um, it, which, if one considers the war a mistake, seems I, almost counterintuitive, I guess. 
Well, I would say two things. Number one, I, I think that um, it's not everyone's marching in lockstep and in well, the same way along this this path. Uh, Hitler and the Nazis definitely, and the the German general staff. Um, but I think that um, you know, obviously, Germany under um, under Hitler. Um, is on a path to um, fight another war, to prepare for another war, to fight another war, to overturn and completely erase the results of the First World War, right? Um, but that doesn't mean they want to refight World War One. Everyone's afraid of refighting World War World War One, and it seems that with Blitzkrieg, Hitler's found, even though that's sort of manufactured as a concept after the successes, that it seems that Hitler's found a formula that would, would actually allow a shooting war that's not going to have the same kinds of um, consequences and costs for Germany. But, you know, sort of two scenes to contrast would be however staged they might have been and partial in many ways, the, the crowds on the street in August 1914 cheering um, and expecting a quick German victory versus in Berlin and elsewhere versus, you know, like, Basically, Goebbels can't get anyone out in the streets to do this in September of 1939 um, because everyone, you know, the, the specter of World War One shows up when it looks as if Germany's going to actually fight, um, you know, and use use its weapons. But when Hitler, you know, defeats Poland in a matter of, you know, six weeks, um, and then I think even more than that in some ways, achieves in, in May of 1940 the complete defeat of France and the occupation of Paris that the Imperial German Army had never been able to do um, in World War One. then um, that ghost of the World War I um, fades into the background. But it's uh, with Stalingrad, certainly with the invasion of the Soviet Union after about December, but definitely with Stalingrad, uh, it comes back. Um, and that... You know, in Western Europe, you can see graffiti written on the wall by resistors or, or people who are just against the Germans. Um, Stalingrad equals Verdun. And mm. Verdun, as we know, was a complete disaster of 1916. So um, would, let me ask a similar question about the Soviet Union then, um, because, you know, you mentioned the, the beginning of the war. Hitler and Stalin had agreed to divide Poland. So what was the sort of thinking there that uh, of of acquiring more territory, you know, considering that the Russian population had also been through a lot in the previous war. And in the intervening years between the war and the outbreak of, of World War II, uh, there, there wasn't a march towards war, uh, except in Germany, I think it's... In, yeah, in, yeah, in Italy, yeah. I, I think it's fair to say. Um, uh, not only was France and Great Britain desperate to avoid repeating World War One, and was very traumatized by it, as, as you mentioned, so was Stalin's Russia. Um, uh, it, it thought war was probably going to come eventually with Germany, but it was desperately trying to delay that. Um, and when Western Europe refused... When Stalin was not convinced after Munich in particular that Western Europe would stand up to Nazi Germany and that their goal was to leave the Soviet Union um, alone against the, the Wehrmacht, the German army. Uh, and, when, and Germany is determined not to have to fight a two-front war like in World War I. Um, they proposed this Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact and uh, Stalin leaps upon it. He thinks, you know, this is a is going to spare the Soviet Union from war. He anticipates that Germany will attack Western Europe and it'll be a repeat of World War I. 
that it'll be a long drawn out war. Both sides will be depleted. The Soviet Union will be rearming itself at this time. And when war does come, there'll be a much stronger position. When France falls so quickly, as as, um, David mentioned, uh, Stalin is just stunned um, and uh, um, never really comes to grips with it. the reason that Germany enjoyed such enormous successes during the beginning of the war is because Stalin refused to heed warning after warning that this was coming. Um, that Germany was able, with three million troops on the Soviet border, to launch a surprise attack is um, defies imagination almost. <laughs> uh, although you, one can come up with some reasons why why Stalin thought um, if he if they hadn't invaded by by the middle of June, they weren't going to invade. Um, that was too late. Um, the heavy rains of the of the fall and the coming winter, um, Stalin, uh, Stalin believed that Hitler wouldn't repeat the mistakes of Napoleon, basically. Right. And, right. Um, but he was he was wrong, and the German successes um, during the first months of the war are, are stunning. I mean, it's like a catastrophic defeat. It seems like the Soviet Union would never be able to survive it. Um, they basically lost their entire army. During the first six months of the war, Germany has complete air superiority. It's an utter disaster. Um, yet, they ultimately prevail for reasons we could go into if, you, if you'd like. So, uh, the, the specific events of World War II, um, I think we'll have to leave for, for another podcast, uh, possibly in commemoration of the, uh, an anniversary there. But uh, the, sec- the ending of the Second World War, which saw, once again saw Germany defeated, um, did not have the same lingering impact, um, the sort of resentment, or at least it doesn't appear to from this vantage point several decades later, uh, that the end of the first war did. Uh, what was different about the settlement to the first war as opposed to the second? I would say just about everything. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, although, you know, I, I would say that it, it had... Uh, the end had a very important lingering impact that was just a very different lingering impact, um, you know, above all um, in the form of the um, occupation and division of Germany. I, I mean, I think the major differences are, number one, the Red Army's in Berlin. Um, the um, Allies uh, have agreed that um, they won't accept anything less than unconditional surrender. And they um, also are committed to a period of occupation of Germany that's indeterminate with, amongst other things, the goals of eradicating all traces of Nazism, um, Nazi ideology uh, from the political culture. Um, and so, you know, I mean, Germany, in effect, ceases to exist as a as a nation state between 1945 and 1949. And after that, you get two new, um, very different successor states that are, um, you know, their 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 early history, and I would say much of their history is is determined really by the Cold War and the and the, and the superpowers. So the the political landscape is is completely different than it was it leaves absolutely um no uh, or not as much room shall we say for for um any kind of conspiracy theories about how germany lost the war germany was defeated but mm-hmm. uh, you will still get you know Germans um, saying, well, the German soldiers were the best in the world, and they were just overwhelmed, particularly by um, the capacity of the United States to churn out all that war material and the troops sent there. Um, And, you know, sort of, you also get a very divided uh, memory of World War II because of this division between West and East. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Russia in particular, well, in this case, they come out victorious. And uh, even though, once again, they probably bore the majority of the civilian casualties during the war. Um, how does that play out on the home front? Well, they do lose an enormous um, number of civilians as well as uh, soldiers. Uh, most people in the West, like in the case of World War One and the case of World War II, think it was one. It was decided on the Western Front, and that's the focus. David and I are part of this program, the Normandy Scholar Program, that um, you know, go to D-Day, um, and that's seen as you know, the, the breakthrough in World War um, II. In fact. 80% of all German soldiers die on the Eastern Front. The Soviet Union would ultimately, uh, well, numbers have gone up um, over time, but it's now generally accepted that 27 million Soviet soldiers died during World War II. Uh, excuse me, um, citizens. Um, uh, about 17 million of them were, were civilians. Um, the German policies towards the civilian population was one of atrocities and um, the case of the of Leningrad, you know, starving the population to death. Um, so the memory of World War II lives on very powerfully in the Soviet Union. Virtually every family lost somebody during the war. Um, when I first went to the Soviet Union in 1982, it was um, common to see newlyweds go to a World War II memorial. Um, that was part of the, just the, the routine of a, of a, of a, of a wedding day. Um, so it's a very, very powerful memory in uh, former Soviet Union. It emerges as you uh, as a superpower, um, the other great superpower. Occupy. It has a. Uh, it occupies Eastern Europe. Has this empire uh, outside um, the Soviet Union. It's. Um, uh, but the country, like in the case of World War One, is utterly devastated by the war. Not just the the population losses that I mentioned, but the economy is in ruins. Um, very different situation in the United States that emerges without foreign occupation. But it's the other great superpower, and the Soviet Union um, sees the loss of Eastern Europe actually as one of the traumas of the of the war. That Gorbachev gave this away. In Gorbachev's very famous. Um, statement. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, that the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century was um, the loss of Eastern Europe, or the loss of the, of the former Soviet Union. Um, and uh, so that's another issue. But uh, the, uh, uh, the, the loss of great power status that the Soviet Union has, that the former Soviet Union has, has endured is one of the lingering memories of, of the war, too. Excellent. Well, uh, that's about all the time we have. I'd like to thank you both for being with us uh, for this uh, look at World War I on, on the centenary of its end. And thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals 15minutehistory.org. You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemispheres Outreach Consortium. Our executive director is Joan Newberger, and our technical editors are Augusta Delomo and Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. 
The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.